So we continue our reading from 1 Corinthians at chapter 4. We're starting at verse 6, and that can be found on page 1146 of the Church Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 to 24 on page 1146. Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man over against another. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere, in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip or in love and with a gentle spirit? This is the word of the Lord. I want to start this morning, if it's okay, with a scenario. Um, imagine you're speaking to someone and are on the cusp of becoming a Christian. Uh, they come to you because they want to know what is the Christian life like. 
And so they've looked at the evidence, they're convinced it's true, but they ask you the question, what should I expect from the Christian life? What would you say? Maybe you'd want to speak about the benefits. You'd want to tell them how much it gives meaning to life to know God and to be part of a church where you're loved. Or maybe you think to yourself, well, I don't want to give them a false impression here. I want to tell them about some of the struggles, uh, the new fights we've seen, the teasing that might come. Or maybe you just think to yourself, it's a question that's quite difficult to answer because in some ways there is not much difference between us and the people around us, at least from the outside. Well, that is the question at the heart of our passage this morning. Uh, What are our expectations of the Christian life? Uh, Here, Paul finally concludes his first section that we've been seeing in chapters 1 to 4, and he does it, you might say, on a bombshell as he calls into question how the Corinthians are living. They just don't get, he says, what it means to live as a Christian. And we're going to see, as we go through this, these three things, that they're living inauthentically, they're living as kings. Then we're going to see what it means to live authentically. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to see why it all is worth it. First of all then, how they're living the inauthentic life. See, for four chapters, if you've been with us these last couple of weeks, um, you'll know that these four chapters have shown us that the gospel comes to us in weakness. It doesn't seem powerful in the way the world sees power. It doesn't seem wise in the way the world sees wisdom. It comes to us in this news about a crucified Messiah. But you would never guess that from looking at the Corinthian church. Because looking at the Corinthian church, well, well, look at how Paul describes them at the beginning of verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and without us. Now, in case you're wondering here, this is Paul being sarcastic, okay? He's not saying, what a great thing, guys. Uh, He's saying, look, you've become kings. Well done you. You know, you've become wise. Congratulations. See, the Corinthians... They don't really get this gospel of weakness, at least in their lifestyle. Paul looks at them, the people in their city look at them, and they just see people living as kings and living as rich people. Look back over the page to chapter 1, verse 7, and you might see why this is the case. In chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly await our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. And I don't think Paul's being exaggerating there. Uh, This was a church that was hugely gifted in many ways. They had the impressive speakers. They had the large congregation. They had the money in the church bank account. Uh, The trouble is, that success had gone to their heads. And now they're thinking to themselves, we're the bee's knees. We're the best church in our city. Uh, we got the most impressive people. We're a church on the top, on the rise. We're going to change the world. And Paul comes along 
and burst their balloon. Because in verse 7, he reminds them that they're not the only ones, and he reminds them where it all came from. Verse 7, he says, For who makes you any different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? We're kings. We're the business. We're on top. Paul says, well, where did it all come from? I was speaking to a vicar a few years ago, and um, it was a vicar from the countryside, and uh, I was absolutely you know, fascinated by this. I said, what's it like being a countryside vicar? Do you, you know, have to wear a white hat and a linen suit and walk around at village fates? And he said, yeah, I do. And I was like, oh, fantastic. What, what, what sort of thing do you do? Do you judge the vegetable growing competition? Uh, that type of thing. And he said, no, not the vegetables, but I was uh, called to judge the flower arranging competition. And uh, he said um, it just recently happened. He'd gone into a tent where all these flowers had been arranged, but as he went in, he um, was tipped off that someone had used a local florist for their arrangement. I know, big scandal in the villages. (laughs) (laughs) And he said he walked in, and it was pretty obvious which uh, flowers uh, were done by the florist. And uh, in fact, he thought he'd stir things up by choosing them as the winners. And uh, I'm not sure if he's still in a job, but um, it's quite funny, isn't it? When, we, uh, when someone feels that the flower arranging competition is so vital that they've got to use a local florist sort of prop their reputation up. But we know that so often there's a version of that in our lives. There's a version of that in church life. Our church, do you know, it's got the largest congregation. Our church is always doing amazing things for the community. Our church has got amazing people. They're amazingly good looking. You should come and see. (laughs) Sorry, that wasn't a description. Hopefully you got that. (laughs) And we say it in a way that, you know, it's all about us. It's all about what we've done. We've built this big Uh, enterprise, this big organization. And perhaps for the Corinthians, it was more of a temptation than for most people. Because back over the page, have a look at chapter 1, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26, he says, brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. See, this was a church created from the bottom of the social ladder. And maybe it was the fact that these people had come from the bottom of the social ladder. They saw their opportunity to have the life that society hadn't given them. So easy, isn't it, to think, I've never been thought of as clever, but to come into church, to learn the Bible, and because that's such a a premium in our circles, and rightly so, to make myself feel valued through my intellect. Or perhaps we think to ourselves, I've never been influential, no one's ever really listened to me, but church gives me a platform to teach or to lead groups. And so finally, here's my chance to be someone, to be listened to. And Paul says that kind of living, that kind of motivation to be kings, to be influential, well, that is far away from the Gospels you can get. See, the Gospel is not an agent through, through which I can prop up my self-image. That is not the authentic Christian life. 
Going back to that friend who asked about the benefits, uh, I wonder what it was you would say to them. I guess from this, you would want to say to them, well, it's not, you're asking the wrong question in some ways. It's not really about what it gives you. It's not really about the benefits. So what is it then? Well, secondly, Paul goes on to show them what the authentic Christian life looks like. He turns away from the Corinthians' lifestyle and starts talking about his lifestyle and that of the apostles. And it couldn't look any more different. Have a look at verse 9 in chapter 4. Paul says about himself, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as to men. See, Paul says, imagine the Roman processions. I mean, Romans love their processions. I mean, the British love their processions. We've had quite a few of them in the last 12 months. But the Romans really love them. And they really love them uh, when they just won a battle. They would come into the city, to Rome, or to another one of the cities, and they, the, the emperor, the, the, the victorious king, would, would stand on the chariot at the front with the, you know, the chest puffed out, showing his military might. And then there would be a huge procession that followed. And right at the end of that procession would be the defeated slaves being dragged back in chains to be used as food for the lions in the um, Colosseum or whatever. And Paul says, I'm like that. I'm, me and the apostles, we're, we're like those captives at the end, being marched along to our death. But you Corinthians, you're at the front. You're the, the proud king. And so look at the contrast. It couldn't be any different. In verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ, but you're so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored. We are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We're brutally treated. We are homeless. And look at the end of verse 13. He says, up to this moment, we have been the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Uh, those words, scum and refuse, there, they describe the dirt that is left over when you sweep the floor. You know, if you get the dustpan and brush, and you hold your breath, don't you, because you don't want to breathe any of it in. Or that word for refuse, it's the, sorry, you know, if you've just had breakfast, it's, it's, the, it's the dirt that comes off your body when you wash. You know, when you have to clean out the shower plug, and you get all that grime in there, it's that sort of word, yes. Hopefully it's having the right effect. And Paul says, that's my life. That's the life of the apostle. It's not your best life now, is it? It's the scum in the bottom of the shower. I mean, going back to that scenario at the beginning, if someone came to you and said, what should I expect from the Christian life? Would you say those two words? <laughs> scum, refuse of the world. But that's, for Paul, the authentic Christian life. Now, maybe you think to yourself, surely he's exaggerating. I mean, why is it that's going to, you know, how's that going to convince the Corinthian church? But 
Paul does something very genius here. I don't know if you noticed this when it was read out, but, but he speaks in a way that really undermines what the Corinthians are living for. I was trying to think how this works. Um, it's a bit like, you know, have you ever met someone who is so obsessed with a pop star or something that they copy their every uh, move and every look? I remember being at a party a few years ago, and I, I could have sworn it was Taylor Swift, uh, but it was just someone who obviously just really liked Taylor Swift and focused on them. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you this, but I loved Oasis, and honestly, Noel Gallagher's haircuts, as soon as he had one, I copied it and uh, started talking... Uh, speaking with a Manchester accent, and <laughs> that sort of thing. But, but, you know, when we really love someone, we start to echo it in our lives. And Paul does something very similar here. See, I'm going to read out to you uh, these verses at the end. And as I do, just think to yourself, where do they come from? Where have I heard this before? Verse 12, he says, We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Seems very familiar, doesn't it? It starts off as Paul's description of his own life, but then it very much echoes the life of Christ. To bless when cursed is straight out the Sermon on the Mount. To endure hardship, persecution, when it's Jesus' life as he went to his death on the cross. And if nothing else was going to get through to the Corinthians, this should have been it. This should have been the kind of penny drop moment where they realize, ah, we've been living as kings, saying that we worship Christ, but actually our lives don't look like Christ at all. And they've looked down at Paul and the other apostles thinking, we don't want a life like that, but yet they're worshipping a saviour who lived like that. See, Christ didn't become a king. He didn't become rich. He was executed as a traitor. He gave up his riches to become poor. And it just doesn't make sense for the Corinthians to say, well, we have that in, in terms of becoming Christians, but we won't have his life. Or we embrace that kind of weakness and inversion of the world's power when it comes to the gospel and salvation, but actually our lives are going to look something different. And it doesn't make sense, does it, that to say that actually we believe something where Christ has subverted the world and brought salvation to the world through something that the world doesn't recognize and for us to carry on living like the world around us. Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus said to everyone, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. There's no small print, no, well, unless you want a successful life now, See, to embrace Christ in salvation is to embrace everything about Him. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we look to suffer for people's sins. There are things that Christ did exclusively that we don't replicate. But Paul is calling into question, what is it they're living for? What is it that gets them out of bed in the morning? Is it their own comfort? 
Is it their own success, their own reputation, or is it something else? It's very difficult, you know, to think about this. I was prepping this in my study, and I've arranged my study. I've got a new desk. It's very exciting, new chair. It goes up and down and things like that, and it just seems so comfortable. Got, you know, a couple of books behind me, and, you know, I get a book budget and all that, and I was just reading this thinking, wow, does my life reflect that of Paul's? Would I be willing, if God called me, to give that all up, to go somewhere where I don't have those privileges? Or what if God calls me to suffer the similar sort of persecution Paul does here? See, it doesn't mean we look for those things. It doesn't mean we go out and cause trouble for the sake of it. But it does mean that those things don't drive us. That is not the authentic Christian life. See, to look at the Corinthian church, you wouldn't guess that they believed in a weak, crucified Messiah. And to, Paul says, what do people see when they see our lives? Well, maybe you're asking yourself the question, why would I want that? I mean, I ask that question. It scares me when I think actually God might call me to something very different. Why would I want to embrace weakness? Why would I want to Uh, hold lightly to status and things like that. Well, finally, Paul goes on to show why this is all worth it. See, why does it matter? Well, in this final section for verse 14, um, Paul focuses on what they're serving, not just what they're living like, but who they're serving. And he says this in verse 15, uh, at the beginning of verse 15, if I can find it, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Now, that word guardian, it's quite a neutral word to us, isn't it? It describes someone who looks after uh, another person that they're not biologically related to. But the word used for guardian here, it's um, a very loaded word in the ancient world. Um, it describes someone who would look after uh, uh, a son, uh, normally a son, uh, and it would um, often be in a rich family where there were slaves, and the chief slave would fulfill this role of basically bringing the son up, making sure he gets to his lessons, making sure he kind of you know, washes himself, that sort of thing, and basically bringing him up to adulthood. And um, this figure, it, um, it's all over the ancient world. It was in plays and things like that because um, it was a bit of a cruel figure and uh, people liked taking the mick out of these guardians. Um, I've got a couple of pictures here of vases, which uh, is more exciting than it sounds. Um, you'll see on the vases there, uh, no, probably won't, but um, trust me, there, on the vases there, there's a, a boy there and uh, here's the guardian uh, uh, with a stick, and um, you'll see that the guardian's kind of telling the boy what to do, and he's not looking very happy about it. Uh, and on the right, you'll see that actually, the, here's a guardian portrayed with one of his sticks uh, ready to beat the boy. Um, so these guardians, they weren't fun, uh, they weren't people you kind of uh, loved, or nor did they really love you. Their job was to just kind of keep you in line, really. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, you, you have 10,000 of those type of figures. Now, it's not clear if he's talking about literal leaders here or just the way they're living, but he is saying, look, your desire to live 
for you to live on top, to be thought of as impressive, well, it's like you've got this little man behind you with his stick ready to beat you. Because look at the Corinthian church and you'll see that it has become a mess. It's become divided. It's become competitive. Uh, people are split into factions thinking we're better than those guys or yeah, you guys aren't as good as us. And Paul says, it's like you've got the little man behind you. You've got the guardian hitting you with a stick. And I guess we get that, don't we? If we are making our wisdom, our intelligence, the be-all and end-all, and if we crave that, well, we know what it's like, don't we? There's always someone clever in us, ready to beat us down. Or if we're making our strength the most important thing, you know, hidden in the gym, this isn't personal experience, certainly not, but hidden in the gym, trying to be strong, there's always someone stronger. Or if we're trying to be more successful, there's always someone with a bit more success than us. And rather than liberating us, this quest to be in top dog, well, it just enslaves us. We have the man behind us, hitting us with a stick, keeping us in check, telling us we're not wise enough, telling us we're not impressive enough, telling us that someone has got the edge on us. But look at verse 15 again, because Paul says, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. See, the father is different to the guardian. The father actually loves the son. The father's job is not there just to kind of keep the son in line, but to, to bring him up because he is so devoted to him, because he loves him. And Paul says, look, I was like that. He was like that through the gospel. He wasn't a father to them because they were impressive. He wasn't a father to them because they were able to perform well. He was a father to them because he knew that Christ had died for them and that he modeled his fatherly love for them on Christ. And Paul says all this, as he says, not to shame them, but to wake them up, to say, what are you living for? If you're going to choose the path of impressiveness and wisdom, the way of the world, well, it is only going to end by being beaten by the bloke with the stick and having a divided church and a, a life where you never feel fulfilled. But take the gospel, embrace the hat, or you'll know that you're chosen you'll know that you're loved despite your impressiveness or lack of it, and that actually you're liberated from the guardian and can live being treated like a son. See, this is why the weak life is better. Not that we love pain or go out searching for a difficult life. We don't, but we hold loosely to those things that make us impressive because we know that that's the gospel. The gospel says to you and me, you're not impressive, but Jesus comes for you anyway. The gospel says you may not be wise, but God has shown his wisdom to you. The gospel says you may not have an impressive reputation, but Jesus cares about you. And because of that, because of that security, we don't need to prop up our own ego. We don't need to desire to look impressive because we know we have everything in Christ already. 
going back to our question, what is it that's our expectation of the Christian life? Well, I'm not going to answer that for you, uh, because that will be over to you in the tea and coffee afterwards. But hopefully we've seen what it's not. It is not a desire to live as a king, to live as if I'm top dog. It is to take up our cross, to live in weakness. And it's all worth it, because that is the message of the gospel. And through Christ, people like you and me are brought to know God, and that makes it all worth it. Let's pray. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? And so, Father, we pray that you would prevent us from the temptation of thinking much of us, thinking much of ourselves. But please help us, Father, to look to Christ and think much of him. Please help us to follow his path, Father. Please help us to give up our lives for his sake, because we know that in him, we find uh, true forgiveness and liberation in the gospel. Please help us as a church to live that out, Father. Please encourage us where we are. Please, uh, put your, um, please reveal to us where we're not. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so, it looks like some people have, have well, quite a few people actually have been uh, on, the, uh, on the Q&A session. Uh, and a few of these have got votes. Why don't we start with a couple of the, uh, I think, the, uh, uh, maybe a slightly quicker one. Um, one was about this uh, role of a guardian. It says, yeah. if the guardian is a malevolent figure, why does Paul describe them as guardians in Christ? Yeah, thank you. So I may have overcooked this. Um, the guardian wasn't a malevolent figure. He just wasn't the father. So he, he, you know, he cared about getting the son in check and getting him to his lessons and making sure he stayed out of trouble because he was... Um, responsible for him to uh, the father. But he didn't have the same relationship as a father. Uh, So, yeah, they've got leaders in Christ. They've got people who are teaching them about Christ. But by letting this all going on uh, and and not calling out the folly of putting themselves first, uh, actually these guardians are are not being fathers. And that's what Paul calls them uh, to to embrace uh, what he's doing. Good, thank you. So they're not malevolent, but they're, no, uh, just not. Yeah, okay. not the same relationship. Um, another one here. It says that uh, uh, in verse uh, malevolent eight, means bad. By the way. So yeah, yeah, intentionally bad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, another one here. It says in verses eighteen to twenty-one. It says it's this. This these verses surprise me. It says Paul seems to be motivating the Corinthians by threatening a telling off. Why is this the way that Paul's trying to get the Corinthians to change? Well, I think he's he's. Um, got this same guardian father thing going through so actually the word whip is the word rod uh and i think he's saying do you want me to come uh, with the rod do you want me to come as a guardian and you know knock you into shape if you if you, as it were um but he doesn't want that he wants to come as a father with gentleness and so um yeah i think he's he's not he's he's saying this because he wants to be a father to them he doesn't want to treat them as sort of immature children and he's prompting them to, to do the right thing. Um, yes, I think that's, that's probably that's all I can say on that. Yeah. Okay, sure. Right, there's a, this question got a lot of votes. Wow. It, it, didn't it? <laughs> it, says, it says, why does Paul urge the Corinthians 
to imitate him rather than Christ in verse 16. It says, does Paul claim to be without sin? Isn't that not the same self-righteousness that he's calling out in Corinth? Um, good question. I think, um, no, he's, he's not claiming to be without sin, and you'll see certainly in this letter and lots of other letters that he claims to be the worst of all sinners. So 1 Timothy 1.15, I think he's the worst of all sinners, um, precisely because that shows the gospel. Uh, but he is an important example because he sh- he's been an example of someone who is a sinner who actually had a lot of worldly success, but has uh, embraced the weakness of the cross. And um, it's not that he's a better example of Christ, he's certainly not, but he is a, an example of someone responding to Christ, like the Corinthian church. So, um, yes, and, and the other thing as well, Paul wouldn't put much difference between imitating Christ and imitating him. He, you know, he wants them to imitate both. But he is saying, actually, in the sense that I've embraced the weakness of the gospel... And actually, I've put my um, ambition to death. I want you to copy me. Um, we're not great fans of leadership in our culture, I think. I think we've seen some bad examples of it, and so we're a bit uncomfortable with that language. But it's quite interesting how much in the New Testament uh, leaders are, are both to be not only uh, able to teach well, but to be an example for people to copy. Uh, and I think there's a real place for that, and Paul certainly thinks so here. Good, thank you, thank you. Um, there's another one, it says, um, how do we balance success in life and this form of life that, that Paul is encouraging? And it says, does this make all success in life and in business, or, uh, or it says, does it mark them out as purely worldly? So I think it must mean as um, not good. Well, that's a great question. And I think it's a great question for us to ask ourselves. So if it's not too evasive, I think why not ask that over tea and coffee? Um, Because I think that's the question it raises for me. Okay, you know, this is a pretty cool place to work and pretty comfortable when I'm not asked to give up a huge amount. But I know I've been overseas with Christian ministers there, same age, same stage, who've given up a lot. and, And it gets uncomfortable because you start to think, Actually, what is it I'm putting first and foremost? And it might be that God's called me to be in this particular context. He may have given me a successful business, successful relationships. Uh, but, but actually, is that the thing I'm living for, or is it actually following Jesus? Um, and I guess that is a question I can't answer for you. But just to encourage you, um, I think um, Paul doesn't, just to remind us that he doesn't sort of throw the Corinthians under the bus. He says, you are saved, you are forgiven, you're sanctified, but actually you will find more life as you embrace the kind of shape of uh, the cross in your, in your everyday life. So basically, I'm not going to answer it. Fair but enough. Please do. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> or perhaps after coffee. Right, but you will over well, coffee no, 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 and come no, no, no. and speak to me. Yeah. Okay, great, good. Thank yeah. you. I think the main question is, thank you. Thank you, Jefferson. Thank you.